Iowa everywhere. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Sage Rolls and Fuzz Experience on the Iowa Everywhere Network. Today, I have Kevin Carter, longtime defensive lineman in the NFL, 14 years, never missed a game as a player. I can't tell you how impossible that is to do. Currently, he works for CBS Sports covering college football. Kevin and I were teammates together in Miami. Uh, he's a, a really good friend. He was a great player, should be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, but Hall of Fame person all around. So enjoy the podcast. I thought it was a good one. From the Channel Seed Studios, Studios. this this is the Sage Rosenfels Experience, exclusively on Iowa Everywhere. Channel Seed, seedsmanship at work. Mr. Carter, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, everybody, this is Kevin Carter. Uh, he is currently in New York City uh, because he has real things going on, uh, <laughs> especially on the weekends. Uh, he works for CBS Sports, covers a lot of college football, some pro football, I would assume. Some, some pro football. Some pro football, but really is, uh, is, is deep into that college football world. Uh, you see him on your television screens. You see him in extremely nice pinstripe suits uh, uh, on, on your Saturday. So I appreciate your time. Appreciate you coming on um, this show. The Sage Rosenfuss experience is what we call it because it is sort of just a random mix of people from my past that have impacted me or just I've enjoyed being around and, and uh, you know, thought I could interview. Um, you disappeared. Oh, there you are. Oh, sorry. Uh, uh, thought I could interview uh, uh, and, and some so people that uh, follow the show could, uh, I don't know. Ha- have a little taste of what I got to have uh, sure. when I was when I was playing football. We spent one year together. That's mm-hmm. right. Um, uh, you were in Miami for two years. I was there for one year, 2006. We will get to that. We'll get to that and sort of yeah. how we, I guess, we became friends. But growing up, um, you grew up in Miami. Is that is that right? Or you grew up in Florida? Like, what, where, where, did, where did you grow up? I, I was born in Miami. I was born at Mount Sinai Hospital um, there in Miami, and um, but I grew up in Tallahassee. So you did. We we moved away when I was probably four or five o'clock. I mean, four or five. And how did you how did you growing up end up at Florida? Obviously, spent all your time in Tallahassee. Which yeah. Assumed, I mean, for Iowans, it's like growing up in Ames and going to Iowa. Like you just sort of don't do that very often. You know. I think being there, um, growing up there and kind of culturally seeing it all the time, kind of having it kind of stuffed down your throat. Um, I, Florida State was appealing to me from 
I guess, from a football standpoint. I mean, you know, they were impressive. I mean, but back in those days, it was the early 90s. So it was, you couldn't go wrong going to Florida, Florida State, or Miami. They were all top 10 programs at the time. And, you know, you, you had the appeal of, of each of the, the schools, you know, Deion Sanders and the whole, you know, the whole primetime thing at Florida State. You had Emmett Smith and guys going to the league, you know, at Florida. And of course, Miami had the bad boys and they were winning national championships and everything else. So um, kind of a heyday in college football in the state of Florida. Yeah, yeah definitely. Kind of, you know, I mean, I, hell, I won three out of four SEC titles at, at Florida. Um which is unheard of these days. Um, but no, being in Tallahassee, kind of growing up there with Florida State, it was kind of saturated. So when my eyes got opened during the my visiting process, you know, I realized that there's a whole lot more to to life than just the hometown school. And my older brother had, had went away to school. He went to East Carolina and played football there. So, uh, you know, for, for me, it came down to Notre Dame and Florida. Um, Lou Holtz captivated me in a way that I was 17 years old and I was a kid that, you know, read a lot. I was a kid that, 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 that was probably your atypical football player in that I didn't start playing football until my junior year in high school. Um, I was in marching band my freshman year in high school. Um, I didn't, I didn't, I had a late growth spurt. And so I wasn't like one of these people that, you know, you hear about these kids that are prodigies or they, they take to it. You know, and they they're, can throw a football before they can talk or walk or do anything. And that was not me whatsoever. Um, I truly grew into, I had a love and a fascination and I had an imagination, you know, and, but I was, I was pretty much, I was really a nerd um, growing up. I was a band geek, you know, was into comic books. I, I, I read a lot. I, I mean, I played every sport. Um, I just wasn't great. At, at anything um and so but i had a growth spurt my freshman year in high school after my freshman sophomore year and kind of went out and played football and everything made sense so to a kid like that who was coming into the the recruiting process i think that was atypical to a lot of coaches who encountered me and so um but lou holtz was was special like he was he was the person that was like you belong here at Notre Dame, mm. it's like you are an eclectic young man who has potential. You're 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 well read, and you, you have no idea how much wonder there is in this world. Come to yeah. Notre Dame, and we will forge this dream with you together. And I was like, man, I was like, where do I sign? Like I was captivated by touchdown Jesus and everything else. And so Florida State really didn't come into the equation for me once I got a taste of what was out there. And yeah, then, but instead, instead of the, in going with Lou and going for you went with Steve, which is completely <laughs> opposite. I had a, I have a sage, uh, uh, an experience with uh, uh, Steve Spurrier uh, in my past. I had a uh, by year two, I'm with Washington and Marty Schottenheimer gets fired. In comes Steve Spurrier and a bunch of his coaches from Florida. Yeah. And I'm the only quarterback in the roster. We immediately signed Shane Matthews. Uh, no, I'm sorry. We immediately, yeah, uh, Danny Warfel, Shane Matthews. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we drafted a quarterback in the first round, Patrick Ramsey. So right. guess who was not going to make the team? That was going to be me. And I was <laughs> traded to Miami, which I ended up meeting you uh, years later. So how did you end up, you know, not going for the, the Lou Holtz? Uh, uh, Notre Dame fight song and, and going a couple hours away to Florida State's rival in, in Florida? Well, 
you know, Steve Spurrier was interesting at the time. Um, he was, you know, he was young and captivating and, and, and he was a lot younger than, than a lot of the other coaches that I was encountering at the time. Um, but he was dynamic. He, I respected the way that he lived his life and the way that he treated his family, treated his wife and his family. Like his, his wife was like Miss Jerry, you know, Jerry Spurrier to this day, if you, if you know her, she is a badass. Like she is a dynamo. The woman's, you know, 80 years old if she's a day, but she still runs like five miles every other day. I mean, she's you know, just crazy, just, you know, salt of the earth, wonderful person, you know, makes cookies for every person on the team on their birthday. Like, so she's always baking cookies or doing something for someone else. And, you know, and I, I meet these people and I'm a kid, but they're like parents, you know, but they're like the, the, the super on steroids summer camp parents, vacation parents that you get to hang out with every day. Well, you know, in a, in a different experience at Iowa State, Dan McCartney was our head coach. Mm. Um, his wife, uh, Margie, she, on, on every one of my high school, the, the occasional time I go on Facebook, Mm-hmm. On every one of my college teammates that I'm friends with, she right. has a comment. Congratulations. Happy yes. birthday. <laughs> I, I mean, it's like she is everybody's sort of grandmother, other mother or whatever, yeah. a mother away from home. And I, mm-hmm. I think that's a, that's a role that really becomes uh, important to the head coach, important to the team. Yeah. There are a bunch of 17, 18, 19 year old kids away from their parents in a, in, mm-hmm. a, in a distant land where everything is completely different and everyone around is completely different and the stakes are high yeah. uh, to have somebody like that, you know, a, a part of the that process. Yeah. And, and, and she was, you know, and I had great parents, don't get me wrong, um, but having that appeal and seeing that he could be an amazing coach and assemble and, and do what we did with that kind of family life at home, that's what I, that's what really captivated me because mm. it's like, you could have it all, you know, you could, you could do both. You can be this coach and this guy won the ACC at Duke, you know, and in like in 1989. So I'm like, Florida state's pretty good. Then Clemson's pretty good back then, you know? And it's like, but he, he wins the ACC at Duke's got this new innovative offense where he's just throwing it all over the field. And, and everything else, and I, I, he captivated me, and he was the one that told me point blank. He's like, "Look, you can, you can, you can, you can come and help us win, or you can go somewhere else and get beat by us, possibly." He's like, "We're building something special." And he says, "Look, look, I'm not, not even gonna, you know, sugarcoat it." And he's like, "A lot of these coaches are gonna try to sell these kids that they are the missing piece, that they're they're gonna be the difference." between winning and losing. He said, Kevin, he says, that's sort of a trick question. He says, because everyone, despite their contribution on this team, whether it be big or small, is exactly the, the difference between winning and losing. And I was like, ah, wisdom that he, that he spits. And he was like, and, and that, and he, but he says, but he says, to go further than that, he says, Kevin, you are the kind of person, you're the kind of kid, you're not just a, ball player there's a lot more to you he's like you have substance he's like people like you are glue he's like when you when you say that you'll come play for me you'll be you'll be surprised at the domino effect that will follow we're going to get players and you're 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 going to be the first of a line a lineage of great players 
that rings through the the halls of Valhalla, you know, one day. And I mean, he's like, he's, you know, selling me this, this thing and telling me that what I can be a part of and how I can galvanize and energize and, and motivate and be a cornerstone for what we're building, you know? And we, we all entered into that agreement with Spurrier, you know, and in that way, the myself and the, the Ellis Johnsons of the world and the Jack Jacksons and the, you know, the Chris Dorings and the Danny Werfels and the Shane Matthews and the Fred Taylors and the Jock West Greens and the Isaac Hilliards. I mean, the, the list goes on of players back then. Like we had no idea what we were building, what we were, being, we were, what we were becoming a part of. But as we look back, as I look back in history, you know, three out of four years, I won an SEC title. I've got three SEC rings. Yeah. No one does that. Um, you know, I, I was a part of something special in a way that, you know, that changed Florida football forever. You know, people hated Coach Spurrier. You know, he talked trash. He was cocky. He beat you by 20 points and say, well, you know, go to, you know, could have scored 30, but, you know, it'll, it'll be all right. And it was just like, and, and, and no one had, no one could touch us. You know, we had, we had an esprit de corps amongst ourselves that was, that I'm that I'm glad to have been a part of because I think it set in motion what I was always looking for when I got to the NFL. I was heartbroken at first when I didn't have it when it, when it wasn't when I thought it didn't exist. But then I met a man named Dick Vermeil, you know, in my third year, and that man loved everyone, you know, more than you can ever and expected more out of you than you ever thought of yourself. And it didn't matter. He was gonna. We were going to work our ass off through it, and he was going to love you through it. And so I was, I was really fortunate like that to to go from playing from someone like Steve Spurrier to to encountering, you know, the the different coaches and people that I did on the NFL level. But I don't even know what question you asked me. No, it's okay. Do, do you, <laughs> no, it's great. Do you feel uh, the coaches though, like? whether it's Spurrier or Kirk Ferentz at Iowa or Matt Campbell at Iowa State or, or whoever it is, when they see a special talent and, and, you know, when you go into a high school and you see a kid who uh, academically is in, in the top uh, of his class, but physically you just see natural God-given gifts that this, this kid is huge and he's big and he's strong and man, we get him a, in the weight room some more and he's just going to be like, there, there's only so many that come through uh, high school football every year. There's only so many guys like that. Right. And uh, I played with a lot of great defensive linemen, mm-hmm. um, a lot of great offensive linemen, a lot of great, all sorts of players, but um, there, there are. I feel like there are almost like special humans, physically and mentally and emotionally, and all those things that go into it. And uh, however you were raised, discipline that um, a, a program like Florida can be like, no, this, but this one guy. He, he said that, but he's like, but this one guy can can not really change our culture, but he can be the sort of cornerstone of what this team's culture is going to be. Right. Um, I think that's. I think recognizing special talent along the way and and not just not just in players okay and i i tell people this and because i people ask my opinion of coaches all the time and and it's because it's just not just them it's 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 who they surround themselves with so yes on the level of coaches i mean on the level of players yes you're looking when you see that special kid excuse me 
and you see that that kid who can change, who can galvanize, who can be a part of, um, you know, symbolizing a change or movement forward in a different direction. Yeah, you're. I think it behooves you to to empower that child that way, you know. And I think so the same can be said of who you surround yourself from a coaching standpoint. Because someone asked me the other day, you know, I was talking to someone about Billy Napier at Florida. And he was like, what do you think about Billy Napier? And I'm like, man, I've spent time with Billy Napier. Like, I like the guy. You know, he's a, he's a, he's a man's man. He's a football guy. He's, you know, an incredible, like, off the charts, like, emotional, like, awareness and IQ. Like, you know, for humanity, his, you know, spirit, his heart's in the right place. But he's just made of good stuff. You know, and he's like one of those people and you're like, you know, and but my only question is your who are your coaches? Who are who have you surrounded yourself from a coaching standpoint? And that isn't always indicative of how special you are as a person. Yeah. Because you have to get people, people have to be sold to to come along with you and they have to be made to believe and you know, at any given moment maybe you haven't assembled that right cast that will accentuate and make him and make his program the type of program that it deserves to be. But it's important on all levels when you find that type of talent to deliver, to, you know, to really examine and build those types of relationships. Cause that's how you, to me, that's how you win a championship. An NFL coach, the biggest test of an NFL coach is how to be the manager of personalities. Because by the time you get there, everyone is capable even most of your coaches are, you know, they know what they're doing, but selling them and getting them to believe and buy in that their contribution is the difference between winning and losing. And I think that's, that's, that's what you're always trying to do. And at the same time, the players are constantly in this position um, that I feel like is in, I mean, there, there's, a, there's always this like small selfish aspect to all of it of like, yeah, we won, yeah. but you know, I didn't really play. And, mm -hmm. you know, and but a head coach has to continue to get every single person to, you know, get on the airplane, go home, wake up the next day, come into work. Let's go it again. We're going to give it another try. And to yeah. truly believe, to truly care, those film sessions, the details, they really do matter at at, uh, you know, four o'clock in the afternoon when you're yeah. like, it could be going. It, it does matter yeah. that, 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 that does the the head coach in football, do you think, is more um important to a, a team than any other sport that we play you know than basketball than hockey than baseball uh, do you feel like football it's it's it sort of is about the head coach it, that just sets the whole program up um because they, they find the right yeah. coaches if they find the right coaches they find the right players they surround themselves with those people and it all just sort of rises together the coach and, and, and football, I think, is more because I think fo football is the ultimate team sport. I, I think, and I think we 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 can say that on different levels. And obviously, you've got to work together as a team in basketball, and you know, but you can have a couple of unbelievable pieces that can, you know, in football, it does not matter how great I am at defensive end if if person who plays opposite of me isn't can't hold the you know or it's 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 totally contingent upon someone else like you can be the best receiver like last night you know i'm watching 
you know, the commanders and, you know, play last night. And I'm like, everyone thinks that, of course, the commanders are going to beat the Bears. And, you know, the Bears are about to fire their coach. And next thing you know, and I laugh at that because you and I know the, the true nature of the NFL. And, and people say, oh, Justin Fields, he sucks. And they're like, nobody in the NFL sucks. Okay. <laughs> Stop that. Like, on, on his worst day, he is better than, you know, than anyone you've ever seen who's the best player in your state growing up. Like, not even close. But... I say all that to say this, you know, someone's going to figure it out and put it together, you know, and, and put it together for game day and, and, and beat your ass. And so when I look at, you know, a team like, you know, with Justin Fields and I like and everyone and everything is lost. DJ Moore couldn't have had the night that he had without Justin Fields. Okay. And, and, and vice versa. Like it, it works in tandem. Like it's the ultimate team sport. So whenever you have, you know, special pieces or whenever you have special players or coaches or anything, yeah, selling them, your head coach is everything. He sets the, the culture. He sets the, it, it comes downhill from him. What his philosophy is, how he deals with people, how he empowers people, how he bitches people out, how he reprimands and the examples that he makes and whether he tolerates a prima donna or everyone's treated the same or, you know, all of that. It's what, you know, my dad always told me that, you know, nothing in life matters unless it matters to you. And he's like, it's like we, you know, people live their lives and do all kinds of stuff. He's like, but the person, if the person that's, you know, in the park kicking a pine cone, if, if he's, if that's his goal every day, you know, if he's fulfilled by that, like, you know, it doesn't matter to anyone else, but it, freaking matters to him so you know these teams talk about is how how important is the head coach i think the head coach in football is 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 paramount he's he sets the culture sometimes the head coach gets credit for teams and chemistry that he didn't build and that he's not responsible for sometimes the players take leadership and they have to and they have to everyone has to feel like they're the difference and has to be invested and take ownership but your head coach ultimately i think you're only going to get as far as his ability to empower other people. Do you feel like, uh, did you watch Ted Lasso? Yes. Love Do you that. feel like <laughs> so many people watch Ted Lasso and coaches watched it too and their wives watched it and right. the, the kids watch it? Yeah. You put the player, you know, high school kids watch that show, everyone watch that show. Do you feel like the, the quote unquote Ted Lasso way, as I like to call it, is um, will actually change football? coaching and maybe even other sports too but like really change the way even coaches like maybe they they look at things a little bit differently and it did open up uh sort of like the, that type of more um maximizing the human thinking right. and then we'll maximize the player right do, do you think lasso uh could have, could have changed sports in that way or do you think it's always going to be this you know nick saban screaming at you type of type of business that that coaching is well you know the one thing i'll say is this um i i think there's always more than one way to skin a cat i think you see different examples of great coaches that are able to get it done in different ways i think you know i think coach vermeil had a little bit of ted lasso in him um but i think that but i know that dick vermeil had a lot of nick saban in him as well Okay. It was barbaric. It was rough. It was, there's a harsh reality to football 
that I think that doesn't exist in other sports. There's a physical toughness common denominator that if you don't have it on a game day, no matter how talented you are, you get your ass beat because you get out hit. You know, it's like if you're not tough enough, if you can't protect your quarterback or if you can't run the ball, it's like there's a so I so I think that issue, that aspect of, of playing football, of having that, I think that's kind of a given. And I think with 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 Vermeil, it was very much he had to get us to a point where he trusted us. He had to get us to a point where, where we were browbeat enough to be open to our potential. And, and nothing was going to phase us in terms of us getting discouraged, us losing hope, because everything of the worst had already happened to us, basically. And so that's where he was taking us. He said, in three years, we'll be world champs. And he says, not everyone in this room is going to be here to see that come to fruition. But in three years, we will be world champs. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, and he's kind of a look to your left, look to your right speech. And there were 12 guys that were left on that team, the Rams, when he came in that held that trophy up. And, you know, he's walking around. It's on NFL films. And he's, you know, at the end, at the end, when he hoists the trophy and the confetti's raining down in the Georgia Dome. Super Bowl 34, he says, he's saying, Kevin Carter, you're a Super Bowl champion. He's saying, Kurt Warner, you're a Super Bowl champion. DeMarco Farr. Now, the names he's calling out are those guys. Keith Lyle, Todd Light, you know, Mike Jones. It's like, there, there's 12 of us that were there, and that's it. Um, so, yeah, I think Ted Lasso, I, I think I like, the, I love the show, and I love how it highlights no matter what, because you can say that it's all about having this hard ass beat the crap out of you, scream and yell at you mentality. But even on those teams, those teams found a measure of their own humanity. They either rallied against the coach or they rallied along with one another. They found a strength and found a voice and found a, you know, that esprit de corps that once they had it, you couldn't tell them anything. They, they had the confidence, they had the supreme confidence that they were going to win every time they come out. That's, even on those teams where you have a guy yelling and screaming, I think you still have the human side, you know, within that. I think that sometimes it's just not recognized. And I think I, I love Ted Lasso for that because it did show that, you know, you get a lot more honey, you know, catch a lot more bees with honey than you do with vinegar. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> um, you know, I think. Talk to me about uh, uh, Kurt Warner, uh, native Iowan, and um, your teammate, uh, Super Bowl champion. Yeah. With you, talk about your experience with him. Um, you know how came team you're already there. Who's this guy? He's the backup. All right. You know, put some preseason games. T tell me how that went. You know, uh, not, not, not the whole movie, not the whole yeah. movie, but you know, g give me uh, your feel for for old Kurt. Kurt was our Kurt was our third string quarterback. You know, and Kurt, Kurt ran our scout team the year before. We were, you know, we were five and eleven. We were horrible. We were the Rams. We were lat. We were, you know, joking our division. We were struggling team. We were the team that, you know, one of those teams that you didn't, you know, kind of like the Bears. Like they're gonna put it together and they're gonna win four or five games. You just hopefully you're not one of those teams that they put it together on. And um, so, but he was our third string quarterback and. He'd run our scout team, and I remember the, the year before Super Bowl, um, we were 5-11, and, and, um, and we'd be in practice sometimes, and 
we used to get I used to get pissed off at our secondary because we'd have to re have to do plays over. We have to repeat plays, and I'm like, Todd, I'm like Todd, man, what the hell, dude? What can we? We're not covering anybody back there. We're getting the rushing quarterback, but we can't touch the quarterback. So we're we're kind of going around them, letting them throw the ball to get the work, you know, to get the look for our secondary. And he's like, and he's like, bro, homeboy doesn't miss. He's like, he came from the arena league or whatever. That is, he said, this motherfucker does not miss. And I'm like, like, what you mean he don't miss? And he's like, bro, he's like hella accurate, man. He's like, he just, you know, you know, T light. And he's like, bro, he just don't miss. And they're like, I'm looking at the DBs and they're like, bro, what you wish for? And so, and so, you know, and that he frustrated us like that, but like, Kurt was Kurt was part of our team. Like during during that time, you have to understand there was a very organic process that was going on as we were getting our brains beat in. Coach Vermeil went down the roster, okay, and it wasn't by position; it was by alphabetical order. And he took groups of eight guys, and you, your your significant other, or whoever your homeboy, whoever you lived with, or you come by yourself, he was gonna have you over. He's gonna big do do a big London broil. You know, and his big grill and his big smoker, and he was gonna open a couple of bottles of wine and have you over and see what the hell made you tick. You know, he was gonna do this, and he did this every like Wednesday night. He'd have like a group of eight to ten guys over at his house and their wives, and it's just like at first it was awkward, you know, because he went down the roster just doing it, and you went to his house and broke bread with him more than once in a season, you know, and he was and it was awkward and it was kind of corny, and some guys didn't like it. And it's just like, so like, talk about Kurt. Like, I, like we knew Kurt. Kurt was our third string guy. He just came in from the Iowa Barnstormers. He was, you know, good dude. We're like, cool, you know? And so, but a funny thing happened going into the off season between um, what was my fourth year and my fifth year in the NFL. And that off season, we, we, we didn't draft we didn't draft anybody at the quarterback position. We we drafted that was I think that was the draft we either brought in Orlando Pace or, or Grant Wistrom. I think it was Orlando. We we brought in that draft and um and either Tory Holt. So those those were his draft picks. Grant Wistrom, first round draft picks. Grant Wistrom, Tory Holt, and Orlando Pace. Three pretty good picks for your first round picks. Um but Kurt gets moved up to number two because our second string quarterback, Jamie Martin, we traded him away to Jacksonville. Yeah. So Kurt becomes number two. And, you know, of course, Coach Dick Vermeil is saying, no, Kurt's my number two. You know, and he's so, you know, and he he loved him. Kurt, you know, Coach Coach loved him. Coach, there's, a, there's an individual story about everybody on that team of how Coach Vermeil you know, loved you and, you know, mm. picked you. So I have a story like that. Everybody has a story where you were singled out at one point and that's, you know, but anyway, um, so we have, um, we're going over to dinner at his house. Kurt becomes number two. We bring in um, that off season. We bring in Trent Green from, from Washington, bring in Mike Martz, you know, Mike Martz had been there before he was an offensive coach for us before and then he left to take to take the quarterback um the oc job in washington and then he came back so that offseason whole lots you know shaken i mean we we bring in trent green mike morris comes in we draft tory holt we um 
you bring in, you know, Oz Hakeem and Tony Horn, all these other players, and we, but we don't get any more quarterbacks, you know? And so right now we've got one and two, and we, we drafted Joe Germain. So, right, so Joe Germain's running our scout team now. He's our, he's our youngster, and, you know, and he's, and, but, but he's not going to play. But Kurt, like, in the event, anything happens to Trent, Kurt's, Kurt's the dude. The arena league and and Kurt was and Kurt was in the arena league less than a year before, okay. But that's how Coach Vermeil did business. If he loved you and singled you out and said you could play, then you could play. I'm standing on the field during the rookie minicamp. I'm not practicing, okay. I'm not participating in the rookie minicamp. I'm just there at the facility, I'm talking to Coach Vermeil and Charlie Army on the sideline. Charlie Army is our GM, okay. And he's looking, we're looking at the rookies run around, and there's a guy, it's this little short, stubby linebacker who played a point, he was a point guard at John Carroll University for the basketball team, but he also played football. HBCU, who's this kid? Charlie Army says, that guy's gonna be our starting middle linebacker. He's gonna play 16 years, gonna be in the Hall of Fame someday. I'm like, what's his name? Uh, London Fletcher. Okay. <laughs> sure. Okay, that little kid, whatever. Don't think anything of it. Next thing you know, halfway through the season, this kid's calling the signals in my huddle. <laughs> you know, and I used to keep barking at me, telling me where to get my ass lined up. So, you know, when everything like that during that time was pretty much storybook, you know, and, and he, and it started off with a story of him choosing you, singling you out, believing in you, loving you, empowering you. And, and that process for so many of us on those teams. And like I said, all of us have a special story. And it's it's the most giddy, you know, <laughs> funny, you know, warm and fuzzy thing you've ever heard in your life. But it's 100% true. Um, Kurt Warner, you know, came into that season. And the preseason, we were killing people. We were so excited. Everything was completely different. We had gone through barbaric training camps before. Coach Vermeil stopped in one practice in the middle of the third year that he was there and called us up together and said, you guys are finally ready. We, we have we've traversed these milestones psychologically and we're, we're ready, we're poised. So we're gonna completely redo everything we do in practice. Our practices are not gonna be long anymore. They're gonna be crisp. We're gonna get out, we're gonna do this and the accountability to get everything done right and for everyone to be on time to make their workouts, to make their meetings, to do everything right, the, the onus is going to be on you. Hmm. And when we look at each other like, we've been going through some bullshit, you know, in terms of two and a half hour full pad practices. I mean, it was like darn near a mutiny, you know, in St. Louis with the Rams. It was bad, you know, when Vermeil first came in. And that's why I say there's a little bit of Nick Saban in him as well, because it was, there was a tempering, you know, kind of going through the fire that we had to go through before he was got to relinquish that and you do, know. do you feel when he sort of released you guys um to your own ownership of the team really right he basically said okay this is you guys get it now this is your team it's different when you work for the team or you're on the team or but somebody else owns it the head coach owns it or the <laughs> university owns it or whatever right but mm -hmm. When, when a coach can actually get a team to the point where all 53 plus the coaches plus a practice squad, right. when they own it, per se, you know, as far as this really is their team. 
Um, Does that empowerment, do you think, I said sort of release a team to the the best version of themselves. And that's what happened to you guys. I mean, you guys are loaded with talent, of course, mm-hmm. great talent, the players, but that mixed with that talent, sort of your magic sauce, you think on, on those great St. Louis teams? Yes. And I'll, I'll add another thing. And there's an element of accountability. And I think that's what, because I think, you know, you get to the point where you're bitching and complaining about how someone is doing something and then you work all the way through it and you get to a place where you have an understanding between what you thought was oppressive and and you can you, you can deal with it but now the person now the person is saying that was all for show it was more about the exercise of you gaining control and believing in one another and owning this this is really not about me this is about you and then you turn around at that point and you're like yeah, we're not gonna we're not gonna fuck this up, <laughs> you know, for yeah. lack of a better term. And so we looked at each other in that moment, and everyone had the same look in their eye, and it was the same look that we had in our eye when it was halftime, when we were seven and zero, and we went into Nashville, and the Titans beat our were beating our ass in the first quarter, and it's twenty one nothing, and we're down. There is no panic. It's the same look that we had in our eyes when, at any moment that we had any moment of adversity going forward after that. There was never any doubt in any of our minds that we were gonna find a way to win the game. We were gonna find a way to do whatever we had to do. No panic, there is no, there is no yelling, no screaming, there is no mistrust. There is, you don't let the other man down. You don't, the person next to you, 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 you will do whatever you have to do because that's who we are and that's what we've, produced here. So that type of empowerment, that type of organic generic empowerment, there's there is there really is no replacement for that organic process. Once it takes place and it had taken place at that moment, we were <clears throat> we were completely empowered. We were strong. We we knew what we had built. We knew that no one had gone through what we've gone through in the last couple of years in terms of the humbling process of getting your brains beat in the bad articles in the paper being in a small market team in the midwest that the fans kind of turn on you at times no one had gone through four losing seasons no one you know was watching nfl films and and inside the nfl seeing dana stubblefield you know say the same old sorry ass rams no one you know we we were i was there when ken norton you know was punching the goalposts and you know, people are coming in and they're doing that. Man, once we found our strength, are you are you kidding me? Once once I knew I looked up and we I had Orlando Pace on one side, Fred Miller on the other, and I had a guy named Marshall Falk in the backfield. Fuck you. I'm like, our, our defense, we've been playing good defense for years. Okay, but now we finally had it. We had me, DeMarco Farr, Ray Agnew. I mean, I mean, Mike Jones, London Fletcher, Todd Light, Keith Lyle, Dexter McLeon. Like we had, we we had Team UC. We had we had magic. We had lightning in a bottle. We had Esprit de Corps. We had <clears throat> we had just a type of love amongst our, ourselves, and you know, and how we did things that that transcended anything that anyone could come close to. So our chemistry, you know, that we had, and and so that's that's the thing. It's like you talk about a head coach. A coach, a coach has to set these things in motion 
and has to talk about, you know, unreachable, you know, materialistic things that are fantasy and talk about all the ideals of team and integrity and love and all these things that when you really try to put a definition on them, you can't say what it is, but once you have it, hmm. it works. Yeah, that, once that, it. That, that, that team had great players. I, you would know how many Hall of Famers. And we'll get in. I mean, you, you, you by the way, you should I've be in the Hall of Fame. Um, um, and I've, I've been to all their uh, induction shrinements. So, I mean, we've got at least four in county. Yeah. It, it was is quite it was quite the team, but it also had the the glue guys, right? I mean, uh, you and I played with a guy named Jeff Scanina. Um, I played with Jeff a couple times. Yep. Did, like, we played in Miami together, and then I played with him also in Houston. Yep. And I think Jeff played for nineteen years, eighteen yep. years. Yeah. Nose tackle, about six one. You know, he would probably argue he was taller, but he yeah. I don't think he was. <laughs> probably the biggest calves and thighs of what, well, yeah. you know, just these guys, that's just a brick uh, sort of body shape, but made basically the minimum wage is, you know, minimum wage, the, the minimum NFL salary for almost all of those years. But like that guy was going to do exactly what was supposed to be done. He was going to be on it at all times. Mm -hmm. um, he didn't need to be really almost coached um, or parented or anything. It was just, right. But you get a, 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 some super talented guys and then a whole slew of guys like Jeff that you would never remember for, for the average fan. But those guys are so important, yeah. um, you, you know, and, and, and treated as equal as Marshall Falk and these other guys as far as um, how they treat each other. And that's when you have a special team. Like I said, everyone, no matter the contribution, you know, big or small, we all felt we were the difference between winning and losing. And that, and that unselfish nature about what we had, you know, like I said, they're Jeff Scanina or Jeff Robinson or, you know, Todd Collins or anyone who seemingly had a quote unquote lesser role. And you can't even really say that because, you know, it, it's like it wasn't a lesser role because it was it was to take, take away their performance and we don't do what we did, you know, and that's the thing. It's like everyone, <clears throat> everyone at one time or another had that pivotal, you know, had the fate of the world in their hands, you know, at, and in one moment during the season, you know, everyone made a play that without that play, we, we don't go to Super Bowl. Everyone had one of those moments, it seemed like during the, the year on our way to doing that, achieving that special feat. So, well, as, as someone over here who was a number two and, and a number three quarterback a lot of my career and took more scout team reps than starting offense reps uh, over, over my years, um, everyone wants to play, but right. you do see the value in how you run the scout team. You do see the value on truly, you know, who you know, we're playing against Tom Brady and you know how Tom operates. You're going to play against Peyton Man. You know how he sort of operates. Yeah. You do see the value on giving the defense, quote unquote, a good look. Um, but also on, you know, you're organizing a, 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 a bunch of misfit offensive linemen and the, the yeah. receivers. And sometimes there's a DB because your receivers are down. That's that's mm -hmm. now playing wide receiver, <clears throat> receiver since high school. Right. And you're trying to get all these organized and like not jump off sides when, you know, he's a receiver. He's not used to going on hard pounds. And so you're it, it, it is a real challenge. And and it, when you do it, I, I, I felt like I tried to do it the best of my ability. But you do feel a respect from good defensive coordinator or because they know it's not an easy 
job and you do feel like you're, you know, very much a, a, a part of the team in, you know, in those situations, you know, so, um, a good head coach will make those types of players who very valued because their, their impact on the team is important, even if they never step on the field on Sunday. Yeah. And I think, and I I think without that type of, I think the head coach has to set that in motion because I think that it's not a natural thing that most players will think of. And to, and it's not something that people will think to circle back to, you know, to give recognition or empower on certain levels. But I think if you have this coach, especially if he's, you know, a little corny old man that looked like he, you know, can't play or can't know or whatever, or if, if someone believing that person and that person believing you and, and it's part of what makes it work. You know, it, it's like you said, you can't have that. It's impossible to get that great look in practice without someone humbling themselves to be someone else. You know, yeah. someone you, you're you're a, you know, even though you were a number two or three, you know, on an NFL roster, there's only 1,900, you know, guys playing in the NFL at one given time, you know, a snapshot in the world. So you talk about a league that's so competitive that only 1,900 guys can yeah. actually be on rosters and play in one given moment. You know, it's special. So. How, how how talented must you be to be a number two or to be a number three in the NFL? But but the fact that you will run someone else's plays because that's your function or your role, you know, in, in getting, you know, the team ready to play, you know, that that type of of trade-off, that type of buy-in, that type of uh, shared, you know, uh, yeah, we, 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 you know, we were all, he always, Coach Vermeil always told us that we had to be co-creators, of mm. our, you know, and we were, we were co-writing, we were, so everything that, you know, we did, we had to feel that somehow the difference between winning and losing or achieving or not achieving was in our hands, it was in mm. our, in our ability, so, but you have to do it, you have to make use of it, if you don't, if you don't have that buy-in, then you get a bunch of you had a bunch of beef and animosity and guys being jealous of other players and, you know, your team doesn't go anywhere. Uh, when we were together with Saban, he used to talk about, um, and I've, I've seen in some speeches since then about being on a bus and basically the football team is a bus. He's driving the bus and yeah. everyone sits where he wants them to sit. And, <laughs> yeah. um, he, you know, sometimes you're in the front, sometimes you're in the middle, sometimes yeah. you're in the back. Mm-hmm. One, just like be happy you're on the bus. Um, but, uh, you know, but you don't get to choose where, what your responsibility is and wherever you're sitting, just do the best you can in that spot. Right. And I was always sort of like, well, I'm, I'm in that spot in the back, that like single seat, you know what I mean? (laughs) Again, on the bus, right. This is great, but it's also right by the exit, which is the, you know, I'm I'm the first one off. So, um, but there is this, uh, what is your role? What is responsibility? And then excel within that, you know, and, you know, if you're the starting safety, you, you can't play quarterback, nor can you be right. the offensive coordinator. Right. And, and that's the hard thing is that, you know, sometimes there's frustration on the other side of the football or other players or coaches and, and all you can really control is yourself. And then your little group, like you're a DB, then you're the group and then you're the, the defense. And that's all you really can right. have an impact on. Oh, then positivity on the other side. You know, mm-hmm. I think every football player has, uh, has lived through that. Let's, let's move on to Tennessee. You're in Tennessee for you trade for a first round draft. Like if things were so great with coach for meal, how come, uh, 
What, what caused you to leave St. Louis? In a nutshell, basically, I, you know, just like a lot of players, had basically outplayed my contract. Um, I was, you know, six pick overall. Um, I, you know, by my third year, third or fourth year, I was, you know, close to the league lead in sacks. And one of the, you know, it was a really good player. I went to my first Pro Bowl, you know, we won Super Bowls, all pro. And I was standing in Hawaii about to play in the Pro Bowl, standing next to Robert Porsche, Michael Strahan, and Simeon Rice. And they all make probably four or five times more than I do at the time. You know, you know they just had found, you know, they had hit their contract stride and whatever. And it's, it's a timing thing. And people don't know if you're on the outside looking in, like at contracts, like if you're a lay person, you really don't don't know, you know. Yeah, a million or ten million, it can be all sort of the same. Yeah. And they're like, I'm, you know, they're like people are like, Oh, you're making two million dollars a year, you know, at that time. What are you complaining about? I'm like, Well, straight hand was making about seven and a half. <laughs> and I and technically I led the league in sacks. So <laughs> I you know, kinda led the league of sacks for three years at that point. I'm like, and I'm still making two million, these guys are making six or seven. So, but I wasn't, I wasn't like, you know, going to hold out or be like, oh, pay me or whatever. It for me, it was just like, my contract's done. I went into my, you guys didn't renew me going into my sixth year and kind of knowing that, you know, you offered two deals and, you know, and I think Kirk took a deal and I think Isaac ended up taking a deal, but the deal wasn't, the money wasn't right. It wasn't structured right. So I didn't take it. So I'm like, I'll just play my contract out. No hard feelings. Well, Mike Martz took took issue with that because um, Vermeil had stepped down, and the the backstory is in a nutshell: Vermeil basically stepped down because there was pressure from you know the whole Mike Martz camp, you know, because he wanted to be written in as the next head coach or whatever. You know, I don't know quite what the story is. That's my my recollection of the circumstances but it was something close to that and so anyway for steps down says he's going to retire and then mike march takes over the year after super bowl but this whole contract issue I, mike march took to heart and, and i can honestly say that because he and i have talked and we're both you know older wiser and you know would not have made the same discuss you know decisions at the time i was young and you know, pissed off that I didn't get my contract, but I was, but I was more pissed off that they were starting to play games with me with the whole, you know, franchise tag and, you know, putting, putting tags on me and doing stuff. And I'm like, look, man, if you, like, I did everything you wanted to do. You guys gave me a deal as a rookie. We shook hands. I played that contract out. Now you're fucking with my money. Now you're fucking with my, my longevity, my livelihood. Like, we all love football, okay? We all love football, but I'm not running through eight brick walls taking years off my life without this financial guarantee. Not playing for the junior. A junior sale used to say, we all love football, but the football, what did you say? We all love the NFL, but the NFL loves nobody. Right. Which exactly. I disagree. It loves all the owners. Yeah. Uh, it feels like owners, to me, but. But so, so the thing is, none of us are playing just for the money, but none of us will play that game without it. Yeah. Okay. Let's just be real. I mean, we find another way to make something lucrative. And so at the time I was just like, I'm just 
like, I'm just done. I'm just, you know, just, I just want to go make the money I want to make. I can't, I can't afford to, to, to I'm getting older and, and I'd miss it. If I'm going to miss out on these paydays while I'm having my best years of football, I'm like, dude, how can I be leading the league in sacks? And I'm, I'm making a fourth annually of, of what, you know, Strahan is making or what, or what so-and-so is making. I'm like, that's just, that's, that's, that's bad business. That's not just you being a poor steward of, you know, your ability and everything else, or you got a bad agent and like, you know, no, you got to do the right thing. So anyway, I think Mike March took it to heart and he thought it was more of an issue that I didn't want to play for him. You know, Dick had retired. He had the magic. He was the, you know, the father figure and I didn't like him. I'm like, Mike, I could care less about you. I don't give a shit about you. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm trying to get my money, dude. Like, you know, what are you talking? I'm like, this is not personal. I don't, I don't care. I'm not trying to piss in your face and say, I don't want to play for the Rams or I don't want to play for you. I'm like, I've been playing this game for, you know, for six years now and I'm underpaid, bro. Like, no. So anyway, long story short, we have squabbles and words in the papers and, you know, everything's ancient history. And I ended up being traded for a first round pick, go to Tennessee. Um, really, really enjoyed playing for, for, for Jeff Fisher. It was, it was, uh, um, at, at first glance, it seemed as though Jeff was a dry man's man, coaches, you know, like former player who basically was, you know, like do your job, was real, had a man approach, and kind of treated you like a man and everything. But after being there for a while, I, I soon discovered that a lot of the same esprit de corps and love and empowerment and, you know, everything that we had as the Rams, there, there's a reason we played them in the Super Bowl. Like they had something special there too, um, between Steve and Eddie and you know, just the cornerstones, the Frank Wycheks and you know Bruce Matthews and those guys. And they had you know Brad Hopkins. They had some dudes. Eddie George, <sighs> telling Eddie you. George. I mean, they had they had Eddie George. They had they had men on their team. And so when I walked into that locker room, I was like, I better raise my game. Like I better like I better make sure. And and I fit right in. You know, because I was made of the same stuff that a lot of those guys are made of. And, you know, it was a great relationship. I really enjoyed playing for Jeff Fisher, um, playing opposite of the freak, you know, playing playing with John Thornton and Henry Ford and Joe Salavea, Albert Hainsworth. I mean, you know, we had some dudes on the defensive line. We had some great teams. Um, went to and lost an AFC championship game to the Raiders, and they would go on to end up losing to the Buccaneers who won the Super Bowl in 2003. So had a couple of playoff runs with the Titans, um, but but great, great time, great esprit de corps, you know, great group of guys um, and a wonderful time in my life. And the funny thing is I was finally making the money that I was supposed to make. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes you have to, and I think that's the, the, the lesson learned. And as I look back on it, um, you know, I've had people say, Kevin, you've got 104 and a half sacks. You played 14 years, never missed a game. You have one of the longest active streaks of a non-quarterback and all this stuff. How come I've never heard about you being up for the Hall of Fame or whatever? You know, people say that and they're like, oh, you're good enough to be in the Hall of Fame. And I'm like, it's not why I play. <laughs> you know, isn't it's not, and I'm not overly concerned about it. And um, having the respect of people that have gold jackets is great, <laughs> you know? And having the respect of people who say that I could have a gold jacket is even better. So, um, but I only say that to say that, you know, when I went to Tennessee and when I when I went into that locker room, 
sometimes you have to leave the team that drafted you in order to get the money and get the financial security that you, you know, were trying to get out of this game. If you, if, shame on you if you go into this game and you play for 10 or 15 years and because you were a good guy and decided to help the team and whatever, you know, your, your portfolio doesn't look like it should, you know, if you're not in, that's shame on you, man. I mean, I'm sorry, like you, you take years off your life and when it's all said and done, no one's going to come back and cut you a check for, you know, for being a good guy, you know, for, yeah. for taking less money so they can pay more people or do whatever. Well, Kevin, you had some great years in Tennessee. I recall when I was in Miami playing with Dave Wanstead, uh, we came up to, to you guys and practicing yeah. with you. Now, <laughs> when when teams do this, there are two fields. All right, Now, there is no JV and varsity in, no. in these scrimmages, but there are the ones and some of the twos, and then there's the, the twos, threes, and fours, or the threes and fours over here. I was over here mm -hmm. uh, whooping up on your uh, uh, undrafted free agents uh, <laughs> over there, but uh, I, I I feel like I I met you or talked to you like very quickly during that time because I sort of knew who I, I like sort of knew who you were. You know what I mean? I had a, yeah. I was up close and personal with you. Um, and then we we trade or we we you're a free agent. I think you're a free agent, and you come and, I, and I'm in Miami for my fourth year, and you come there uh, to. I want to be a part of the, the Nick Saban NFL experience. And so I think you and I, and I'm not sure if there's anybody else, played for both Steve Spurrier and Nick Saban. Yeah. It might be the two, two, that might be the common bond here. Total opposites, to, to, both very successful well, Hall of Fame coaches. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what, 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 tell me about your Nick Saban uh, experience in Miami, uh, 2005. Yeah. Well, the first thing is I was it was in Tennessee and then, you know, Floyd Reese, God rest his soul, the GM of the Titan, Tennessee Titans at the time, called me into his office and he says, look, you know, we're we're going younger. You know, we're, we're rebuilding. He's like, I got a ton of respect for you. I'm just going to tell you before we do this. He's like, we're going to go ahead and release you because you, you still got a lot of football to play and like you're going to get two calls when you leave my office. He's like, um, you know, Mike Fox is going to call you. You know, they're really interested. And I talked to Belichick, you know, so he's always been interested in you. And, you know, you're going to see if they can work something out. He says, so you're going to get some calls, you know. So this is a this is a happy, sad day, you know. And he was very, and I, I, and I liked Floyd, you know, had a lot of respect for him. And, um, and so I was kind of bittersweet walking out of his office like, okay, well, you know, the bad news is I got to go tell my wife, you know, the bad news is, you know, we got to move and we're out of a job. The good move, the good news is we'll probably make more money, you know, next, next year, wherever we go and, you know, hitting the free agent market at the right time. And so I'm driving home from, from, from Floyd Reese's office in Nashville that day. And the first call I get isn't from either one of them. It's from Jason Taylor and Jason Taylor calls me and he's like, what's up, dude. And I'm like, Hey, Jason, how are you? You know, like Jason and I, I don't talk, you know, we're, we're friendly, you know, I, I know him, he knows me, I, you know, we're both defensive players, hung out at the Pro Bowl, you know, we're cool, but I'm like, what's going on? And he's like, uh, what are you going to do? 
I'm like, what do you mean? What am I going to do? And he's like, you're, you're, you're out of Tennessee, right? And I was like, how, how the hell did you know I was out of Tennessee? It hadn't even hit the paper yet. I just left Floyd Reese's office. How the hell do you know that I'm out of a job? And he's like, well, I'm sitting here, you know, with, with Nick, you know? And uh, I'm like, Nick who? He's like, Saban, you know? And he's like, um, he's like, look, he's like, we got Bonnie Holiday. We got, we got big truck, you know, keep trailer. And he says, are you coming? And right then I'm like, you know what? This is not a conversation for, for you and I. I said, it's a conversation. I said, I said because really bottom line is money. Bottom line is the deal's right. You know, we, we can have a conversation. If not, then, you know, and, um, and he's like, yeah, I don't think that's really the case. I don't think that's really the issue, Casey. Just, you know, get your number and have your agent call him back. And I was like, okay. So I literally called my agent. I'm like, what the hell's going on with Miami? And my agent's like, oh yeah, we got you. You know, basically, you know, they want you to play. They're gonna play this three, four, four, three. You're gonna play Belichick's defense. They're gonna do this whole thing. And they got the personnel there. But basically Jason Taylor, you know, he's like the missing piece. Either he's gonna stay and play the buck, you know, or he's leaving to go to, to Washington or wherever he was gonna go at the time. And, and so, but he, basically they needed me to be the third end, you know, do the dirty work to, to be, to be the fall guy and, you know, and let, let all the linebackers, you know, win every award, which they did um, <laughs> for the next two years. And so, um, so I ended up coming down there, you know, and for, for me, it was a great opportunity because I had never played in a three, four, um, like full time. Um, and in this defense, like I, very high football IQ defense to play in, um, you know, kind of a slash a three, four slash four, three hybrid defense that could do anything. It could line up and present as almost anything. And the personnel that you had to have to play it had to have the collective football IQ and as well as the athletic ability and the strength and the size to be able to two gap, single gap, do everything and go seamlessly through that transition, you know, all, all the while, while running complex blitzing schemes and zone dogs and everything else. And we had the perfect cast and crew to do it with. I mean, it was, you know, like I said, myself, Keith Trailer, Bonnie Holiday, Jason Taylor, you know, David Bowens, Zach Thomas, Junior Seau, um, you know, Jason Taylor, Jeremiah Bell, Sam Madison. I mean, it was just, it was a squad. And, oh, I know. I, I, I had been there. I had been there for, yeah. you know, three years before that. And, yeah. you know, I think our salary cap was about 70, 30 defense to offense. It was like we had Ricky and we ran him to the ground until he quit, basically. And, you know, oh, well, Chris Chambers is pretty good. But other than that, we were not spending a lot of money on offense. And we just, no. you know, br- you know, Brock Marion earlier, he had he was making a good, good amount of money at safety old Dallas Cowboy. Yeah. We it had been one of the best defense in the National Football League. Yeah pretty much since Jimmy Johnson showed up and, and Jason and, and Zach and, and those guys. And so you were joining like a sort of an, not an all-star defense, but oh, they were, you, you knew it was going to be one of the best defenses. Tim Bowens. I mean, just, we had, we had dudes, man. We had, we had just the strength, you know, especially up front. And so for me, it was a great opportunity. Um, at that point in my career, I'd never played in a, in a three, four defense. And I looked forward to being part of a really Good seasoned, high high football IQ group, and and for me, 
you know, it was it was a weird situation in Miami because Nick Saban was sort of a dictator in terms of um, how he treated people. And I think that was the biggest issue with people didn't like about him because he treated people differently, you know, and, and I and to this day, like I've, I've talked to, you know, to coach Saban and I've, we've talked about being in Miami. And, you know, there are things, you know, going back in time that he would have done differently. And, you know, you can always look back in hindsight as a perfect science, but he was very, I think because of the personnel we had on that defense, like I still enjoyed going to work. Like, like I loved the room that I was in, you know, Dan Quinn was our defensive line coach and he wasn't a defensive line coach. He was a coordinator or head coach. And we, we used to joke with him and tease him. You know, Richard Smith coached our linebackers. Dom Capers ran our defense. You know, Will Muschamp coached our DBs and ran and raved and screamed everywhere. Kirby Smart was quality control. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and it's like, we're, I'm like, I'm bitching at Kirby Smart because, you know, I don't have a page in my blitz report. You know, I'm missing, missing one of my, one of my things in my blitzes in my playbook, Kirby. And, I'm, you know, we're, and at the time, again, we're, I'm, I'm, I, I tell Kirby every day. Kirby, when you're a big time head coach, don't act like you don't fucking know me. <laughs> you know, <laughs> don't, don't don't act too highbrow when you see me a year from now because there was a lot of talent just that had been assembled there, and that's one. I think one of the common threads that you see with great coaches, and what we we're talking about earlier, but Nick Saban, you see it now. He surrounds himself with the best coaches, and if if you're doing something better than he's doing it, and you're not in his camp, he wants you in his camp. So yeah. learn from you. And and so being a part of that defense was really special. It was a lot of fun playing with Jeff Scanina and, you know, Timbo and David Bowens and, you know, Jason and Bonnie and Big Truck. And we, we had the best room. You know, it was it was it was a, so much fun going to work. It was hard because we didn't win. You know, we had our we had our troubles and we were struggling to offensively to, you know, to, to make things work. We didn't have a great, well, we didn't have a great offense. Our offense had, had not been great in Miami before he got there. It was actually, was better. It was better than the, better. Um, I think the Norv Turner offenses that were there my first couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, we tried, we did probably throw the ball more, uh, try to be a little more creative, but um, it, it was an okay offense. We, we, we started three and seven. We won our last seven games or something like that. Mm-hmm. Last six, seven games to go nine and, Nine seven. There was one game. I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know you got things to do. There was one game where I had a personal great game in my life. You played fourteen seasons, never missed a game, started almost every one of those games. I deny I had twelve starts in my twelve years, and there are certain games that are extremely special to me. <clears throat> one of those is Miami Buffalo. Um, I'm not sure when that was probably in November, I'm guessing yeah. um, we're down talking about that game and your experience. Uh, Cause that's, you know, probably one of the few times, you know, uh, our relationship together. Some of that is sort of playing and, and rooting for the other guy. And that's one of the few times where I was really <laughs> out there and, and helping the ball club. And I wasn't the guy run that runs the, <clears throat> run the scout team. Well, that's, that's that whole run though. I think that's kind of what endeared me to being in Miami because it was rough. Like when I got there, we'd had a couple of massive hurricanes that came through and we lost power early in the season. You know, it was, it was typical Miami. I mean, you know, Florida's <laughs> best and worst place in the world, right? It's like great stuff. There it was also horrible stuff there. And, um, 
but yeah, it, it was a situation where we were kind of on the comeback um, later in the season, you know, and we, 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 we finally found our stride. I think we, you know, we weren't, we weren't too conservative on offense, but we were, we had learned to not turn the ball over. And, and I, and I think, you know, we were able to lean on the strength of winning vertical field position with the field position that our defense created and, you know, their ability to not drive and sustain drives. And that game in particular, like I remember, Jason was so pissed. Like he, he's, he's pissed. He's like, I don't want to lose these fucking guys. You know, and we're like, and we're looking at their offense and we're like, they're, like, they're not good enough to beat us. JP like, Lossman. Yeah. Lossman. I'm like, man, I'm like, these guys, they aren't, they aren't anything special, but it's like, you know, we kept, but up until that point, we had been put in, put in such bad positions, you know, by our offense and turning the ball over and stuff that it just, we were just struggling to get off the field and give up a field goal and, and not, you know, and not let the bleeding, you know, because we knew that we'd be back on the field in a little while because we weren't scoring points and maintaining, you know, possession of the football. But that game, that game, Sage, <laughs> that game, that was, that was, that was, that was one of the bright spots. I, and, I, and I remember you had a heck of a game. I'm like, I, I'm, I was almost tempted to, to look up your stats from, from that day. But um, I don't know. I, I think, I think Chris Chambers had a pretty good day that day. Yeah, Chris had oh, 16 catches for like <clears throat> some yards. Yeah. I, we were down 23 to three going to the fourth, and and uh, Gus had gotten a concussion like late in the third. I had one yep. drive in the fourth that we moved the ball, but then we punted. And then I think we ended the game on three straight touchdowns, but also like three straight three and outs basically defensively. It was like we got the ball back, you know, pretty quickly, especially at the end where we did score. Um, and you know, I think there's two and a half minutes left. We had our timeouts and they, they didn't get a first down. I mean, you guys were like that, like, Hey, we have to get a stop. Oh, okay. Well, our defense will just get a stop. Like they, they you guys could do that. Uh, and, yeah. And, but, and, but that's the thing though. Like we, we had that ability to do that, but I think we also had the age and the personnel that knew what the situation called for. Everyone had yeah. been there before. So we, there was no panic in that moment. We were just like, let's fucking go take care of business. And like, we all kind of got in gear and did that. And, you know, and, and I, I remember in that moment being on the sideline because I remember because yeah, I, I couldn't, rem I couldn't remember what it was, why you were, because yeah, Gus, Gus had a concussion. Gus was knocked the fuck out. That's right. He was, he was done. And, um, and, and, and there were, we had three, three and ounce in that second half, giving ourselves a chance to win. And I remember like Jason was, Jason wouldn't sit down. Jason was walking back and forth and in front of um, like, uh, like the end of the bench because we all sat on the very end. Like our DBs were here and then our linebackers were there and then the defensive line was all the way at the end of the bench. And he would not sit down. And he was like, I'm not fucking leaving here losing. You know, and he's walking up and down. And he's going up and down. I'm going down. And then, and and he's, you know, and so we we go out there. We, we get the first, we get like the first, we get the first two, two, like first two, three and outs. And then we came to the sideline and, you know, and I remember, and like, it's funny how like the relationship between people, you know, and in that moment, like, I think I was, my personality is like, I'm not a panicker, you know, and I'm, I'm sort of level-headed and kind of even when it comes to that. I, I'm very sensitive. My personality is big, but when it comes to a panic situation or in the heat of battle, I get really even and metered and focused. And Jason is, Jason is a little kind of, I don't know, well, not that he's hysterical or he's, you know, panicky, but he seems to be more vocal, 
and it left a little bit more of it out. And um, and he's and he he won't let me go, you know. And he's he's like got a hold of me, and he's like, "Casey, we got to get this, we got to get this." And like, and I think, you know, and I, as I look back on that time, and I know you didn't ask this question, but like, <laughs> the relationship that Jason and I had was, I, I was very much like um, like a calming force. You know, just like when he called me to see if I was coming to come play with him or he was leaving. It's like he wasn't going to stay if I didn't, if I wasn't there. And I know there's a fundamental difference between, you know, your your left end and your and your right end. Your, you know, your guy that the quarterback can see and the guy that's coming from the blind side. There's there's a real symbiotic, there's a real relationship that, you know, you as defensive linemen, you can either be selfish and help one another. You can, you can, you know, build walls. You can force, you can do all kinds of things you can do to help each other. And, and I think from, from playing with him, he knew that I knew that. And I was a very unselfish player in my nature. Anyway, I, I always did what, you know, what the team needed. And, and in that moment, I remember being on the sideline and I, such a, such a happy day. I, and I know it's a happy day in your memory. I know there's, I know it sticks out in your mind. You remember because it was the game you got to start, but I remember just I, the the small wins because I knew what it was like to come into the NFL and lose and get my brains beat in. Yes, I have a Super Bowl ring. Yes, I have a Lombardi trophy. But the, the majority of, of seasons for the majority of players in this game is losing. It's, it's, failures. It's failures. Well, nine and seven is a failure. You know, if yeah. you don't make the playoffs or at, you know, now it's nine and eight or, or even a 10 and seven if you're in the wrong division. Yeah, I mean, if you don't go to the Super Bowl or win the Super Bowl, you end up being it's, – it's not good enough. And then there's the aspect of, like you've you've done, won the Super Bowl, and then as soon as it's that sort of done, all right, March 1st, here we go. Right. Like, it's it's going, you know, and um, and we're a couple of weeks behind and we're tired and we're still sort of beat up from from the season going an extra four games. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and the offseason got shorter all of a sudden. Um, yeah. And so – yeah, it, it is a never-ending, um, never-ending battle out there. We it, it was it was it was a great day, a great day for me personally. Um, you know, throwing a touchdown pass at the end of the game to to win it on on a big comeback. I, I think I think it broke Marino's record or for fourth quarter comebacks or something. Oh, wow. Dan has nine thousand records, and I think I have one in Dolphins history. But uh, uh, that that was a great day. It's interesting these special moments in your own personal life, and if mm-hmm. you're around other people, it's it might be special for a different reason. Yeah. Um, but they remember it because that day was that day was a special day. Um, I remember that day because man, the wins are hard to come by on Sunday, and people people. I think that's the thing you realize you get to the NFL is you don't take winning for granted because their win on Sunday, man, is. Sometimes when you haven't had one in a while, it's like there's and so for me at that point in my career, like it wasn't about going to another Super Bowl. For me, it was about coming close to recreating that esprit de corps with a group of guys, you know, that I had. And whenever whatever I could whenever I could have that, whenever I could have a snapshot, great day. Yes, I, the reality is I make a lot of money doing what I do and I love it. And it's taken years off my life. But right now, everything is right in the world. Right now, everything worked out. Right now, it's like we you, you roll your plan out there. You plan your work. You worked your plan. And it, it, it everything turned out. The beer tastes a little sweeter. You know what I'm saying? It's like I'm going to enjoy, you know, coming down from this and just a little bit more. So those, those happy days that you're able to give yourself in the midst of that journey, 
sometimes are the things that, you know, years later, you know, 50 year olds get together and talk about. So, yeah. Um, well, I'm glad that our paths uh, crossed somewhere along the way. I, we had a, a couple barbecues, cookouts. Um, you know, when you go through hurricanes, uh, the freezer's yeah. not working, the refrigerator's not working, the, that meat's going to go bad. And what is working yeah. is the grill. And so, you know, my family's out of town, your family's out of town, everyone leaves but the players. We still right. got to practice. And so you, you stopped over a couple of times, you had some great conversations, great, uh, you know, bus ride conversations. And of course, the way games, yeah. I know you sat right in front of Nick State because you're one of the older guys. And so you're in first class where all of us are you know, in, the, in the back, you know, in, with Coach Dave. And so a lot of great memories uh, from my one year with you. And it was great seeing you in Canton um, at yeah. Zach Thomas's recent induction. I know you were there for, for that. And um, I, I truly believe you should be in the Hall of Fame. I think that um, you have great stats, but your game is so far beyond the stats. Your game uh, are, are all the stats that you that don't show up as one of the – you know, various forms of defensive statistics that you can compile. And um, for those reasons, uh, you, you're, you're a Hall of Famer, without a doubt. One of the great men who I think have ever stepped foot on in the National Football League. And there's a lot, a lot of characters all over the map. And <laughs> yeah. um, I, I see why Steve Spurrier, uh, why he liked you so much. I see why Lou Holtz thought you were. Perfect for Notre Dame. Um, glad I met you along the way. And, uh, you know, good luck to you. No college football questions. I get who's going to win the national championship this year. This is what you do on sun, on Saturdays, right? College football. Yeah. Right now, right now, who, who's going to win the national championship? You might not like my answer right now. Right now, the, the best, the, right now, the best team, the best team is, the best team in college football is Michigan. It is. It is. People gonna, think it's people think it's Texas, you know, because yeah. Quinn, Quinn Ewers is playing out of his mind. Okay, and their defense seems to be for real. They matched up physically with Alabama, and I think everyone saw that on full display. So they they kind of passed their big test. But I think the other big test is they got to beat a team that not only has the five stars and has the has the strength along the line of scrimmage. Now you have to find complete team like a team like let's say an ohio state with an evolved Kyle mccord or michigan as they exist now with blake corm and donovan edwards in the background that defense and jj mccarthy it's like be the complete team and i think they're going to have a big test tomorrow when they play oklahoma so that we'll, we'll know we'll know a lot about them but i to me the best the best team is is michigan right now um I can't say the Ohio State University because of the lack of evolution with their quarterback. That's going to take a while. That's a process. The same thing can be said for Georgia. Um, Georgia is, they've lost 29 players to the draft in the last two years. And that type of attrition, you can't take it lightly. You see the difference in how they're, in their inability to squelch every offense that they play like they have in the past. So, but they're still great too. And Carson Beck, is developing for Georgia. So I, I think the 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 playoff picture, you know, in college football, talking about four or five good teams, you know, Georgia, you're talking about FSU out of the ACC, you're talking about Ohio State, Michigan in the Big Ten. Um, we'll see who's better out of 
Texas and Oklahoma and the Big 12. And the Pac-12, unfortunately, is, is, is once again the cannibal conference. It's, it's got some of the best quarterback play um, in the country. You know, you've got easily four or five, you know, counting the Cam Wards and Bo Nixes and Michael Penix Juniors and Caleb Williams and um, of the world. And, and, you know, Cam Rising hasn't even come back to Utah yet. And I mean, Pac-12 is loaded with great quarterback play. I'm talking guys who can, you know, process, you know, over 75% efficient, you know, a gang of yards and, but at the same time, it's, it's going to be I'm going to hard pressed to think that there's going to be one team that's going to be able to emerge from that conference to represent in the college football playoff. But we'll see. October 21st, I think, in a couple of weekends, I'm calling uh, the Michigan Michigan State game. Mm. Uh, I'm looking forward uh, to that. Yeah. Uh, from what I've seen so far, um, j- just so far this year, Michigan extremely physical football and yes. that is that's jim harbaugh mm-hmm. uh physicality he doesn't have uh, some wide open playbook and he doesn't have some special fancy defense right uh he just he he can get the talent there mm-hmm. michigan and two nil i'm sure on top of it um but he just beats you down uh, his his football teams and he's got great talent that football team and and you know, I don't know, probably the best quarterback uh, that he's had, you know, is, you know, since he's been there. Yeah. Definitely, definitely a very good one in, in McCarthy. So it is interesting, by the way, Ohio State with with McCord. Uh, I did a football camp a few years ago when these kids were all in high school, and I had Drake May from North Carolina and uh, Kyle McCord just doing three step drops, throwing five step drops, throwing seven step drops, throwing right, and yeah. you just film them, and you just sort of see them next to each other. And it for me, it was I was like, Drake May is going to be the better player. So you could just like sort of see the guys that are a little bit smoother, a little bit quicker. The ball comes out faster. The processing is a little bit different. And and so I don't know, but they're 17 year old kids. Right. So, you know, who knows? But um, I thought Drake May was going to be a great player. And I, I McCord didn't seem to have that um, that juice, that sort of quick energy that I feel like you need to be a, a really good quarterback. I'm not saying he's going to be a bad quarterback, but he looks pretty good so far, but, uh, uh well, so far not... you're right. Right. So far you're right. Because yeah. Greg may is balling out and he's, he's doing more with less where he is. I mean, Kyle McCord is surrounded with five stars as far as the eye can see. That's one of the issues almost of going to a school that's too good is you never have to sort of overcome. Brock Purdy at Iowa State had to run around and make plays yes. and sort of overcome against Oklahoma's and Texas and the Big 12 defenses. And Drew Brees was like that at, at yeah. Purdue. I've, I've mm-hmm. talked to for, for quarterback development. I've talked about this a lot is actually a lot of the quarterbacks who are not on the great teams. Pat on, Pat, yeah, on those teams that uh, you were – there was more responsibility on you. And maybe you only went seven and six in college, but and, and I don't even know how many yards you threw for, but you but were responsible. on your shoulders. You were on the quarterback. You were the one, you were the one having to move heaven and earth to do it. And those guys, and those guys a lot of times make uh, you know, great pro quarterbacks, even yeah. if they were not at the top, top, you know, top mm-hmm. programs. So um, Kevin, I'll let you go. Uh, I appreciate your time. Uh, good luck. Uh, enjoy New York this weekend. Fall yeah. is here. Yes. Uh, I'm sure. <laughs> Central Park would be gorgeous. Uh, that's gorgeous all, all around the, the Midwest and, and the Northeast. So uh, safe travels back to Tampa, and, and let's talk soon. Anytime. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. All right. Iowa everywhere.